pitfalls of being motivated by fear, which might not sound like something that happens to us, especially if you have a personality that uh, portrays more bravado than others. But everybody is fearful of something. The most uh, uh, outgoing people have different fears. Uh, and the most shy, introverted people have other fears that, that tend to motivate them. And uh, I was reminded as we... <clears throat> um, as I was living in Oregon, every place that I live I have regrets about because I didn't visit the things that were local uh, like I should have when I lived there. And when we lived in Oregon, in southern Oregon, southwestern uh, Oregon, and also, of course, certainly northern California that you think of, but if you were, uh, we, we never saw the redwood trees. We never went and saw the, the, the massive uh, sequoias, and, and uh, the most famous in northern California is called the General Sherman uh, tree. But if you were to venture just north of San Francisco into the Muir Woods, there is an incredible forest of sequoia trees. And um, for, for kids, that's what a sequoia tree looks like. If you lived in Maine all your life and you haven't seen them on TV or the internet, that's a sequoia tree, alright? And those aren't even the big ones. You can see a person standing next to that tree there. But sequoias are sometimes referred to as the largest living things on earth. Uh, They're reaching almost 250 feet in the air. Some of them have stood for as long as 1,500 years. And when you stand in front of their trunks and underneath a a, a canopy of their uh, their evergreen uh, needles, uh, more than 20 stories above you, it's hard not to feel tiny. And it's hard not to feel envious. And if you ever talk to a tree, like some people like to do in our day and age, and had a conversation, how did you grow this big? How have you done it? How have you stood through some of those storms that come off the Pacific coast? How have you stood strong through the storms of your life, all the difficult situations? How have you not toppled? What do you think they would answer if they could talk back to you would be? Deep roots, right? How many of you say because of the deep roots of that tree, that's why that strong tree has been able to stand? And that's probably what we would all would think, but it's actually not that. Their roots are only about four feet under the ground, a sequoia tree. And uh, you would think that deep roots would be the reason that sequoias would stand so long. But the reason that those sequoias, and some of them date back to a few decades after the collapse of the Roman Empire, that they stand so strong is not the roots. The roots grow only about four feet in the ground, and growing deeper does help many trees remain upright. But the sequoia that you would stand before, like an ant has not overcome the difficulties of life because of its roots, actually, you'll notice that that sequoia has other sequoias all around it. That tree has other trees surrounding it that support it and keep it strong. Each tree has stood strong through the centuries because each tree has an interdependent nature. They need the other trees. 
And what I'm told is sometimes their roots interlock with each other. The roots don't go down very far, but they interlock. And this connection to our spiritual life should be obvious, but in fact, many times it is the most lacking part in our spiritual life. Many times we think of Christianity as only a single solitary walk. My personal spiritual disciplines, which I said are so important, but it is not, is not the whole kit and caboodle of what Christianity is. That is not all of what Christianity is. And just as that mighty sequoia would topple without a community of supporting trees that help shield the wind, uh, that help uh, uh, um, uh, uh, interlock the roots, believers who seek transformation apart from a Christian community, like ours gathered here this morning, are very vulnerable to spiritually topple in the winds of adversity. Now, there is nothing wrong, and we would want all of us to be serious about our spiritual, personal disciplines that help us access and, 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 and participate in the graces of God, the strengths of God. And there are so many resources out there today for personal spiritual growth and so many uh, uh, things that, that are good to, to, to read and, and, help, and help understand the scriptures, etc., And we're grateful for these things. But we should never miss the beauty and necessity of Christian community in our growth. And I mean more than Sunday school class. If community is ignored, these resources may fill minds, but we do not see the blind spots. We all can have tunnel vision. We all have things that other people, we need other people to speak into our life and help see. And the community of of Christ is a community that you cannot live without. And if you do live without, you are reaching a very small percentage of your potential in Christ. Community is not just one of those annoying consumer needs we need just because we're lonely. No. It is more than that. Community is about transformation. And in this passage, in Hebrews chapter 12, he is all about seeing community being transformed. And Jesus understood this fact, did he not? He surrounded himself with 12 men. And spent time with 12 men, and particularly three of those young men. And, and Jesus understood the, the, the power of, of, of investing lives into other lives. And in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 through 16, this comes on the heels of a passage that we looked at last Sunday, where he has told us that don't despise the training of the Lord. Don't despise God's gymnasium for making you holy and godly. Don't look down on it, and also don't uh, don't 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 look down on it, but also don't take it lightly. Uh, don't ignore it. And he quotes from Proverbs chapter three to remind us of that fact. And in chapter twelve, verse twelve, he says, "Wherefore or therefore, therefore." And that therefore at the beginning of the passage is referring back to verses 3 through 11. 
And the main point of last week in verses 3 through 11 is this. The pain and the trouble and training and God's gymnasium that you may be experiencing right now or you may be on your way soon to experience or maybe you have just come out of is not a sign of the hatred of God. But it is rather a sign of the pure love of a good father. Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, he trains. And these people, specifically in our context, were being persecuted by others. They were being ostracized by the community. They may have had business relationships that were severed. They may have had family relationships and homes that they had grown up with that they could not, were not invited to or not a part of. Uh, they may have had economic difficulties. We know their property was taken away in Hebrews chapter 10. We know some of them were put in prison. And they're wondering, is this worth it? Does God love me? And verse 7 says, yes. Verse 6 says, yes. Verse 10 says, yes. He says, it's for discipline that you endure. God is not dealing with you as an enemy by allowing these in your life. He is dealing with you as your sons. Have you ever been around a spoiled brat? Why is that kid a spoiled brat? He didn't receive the training and the discipline that he needed. Now, don't go looking around at my kids or other people's kids, all right? He didn't receive what he... It it is not the sign of love for a father to never correct, to never guide, to never train. It is not a father who loves his children. It is not the sign of a father who says, go do whatever you want. No. Because that father knows that my job is not to be your best friend, Junior. My job is to produce you into a man. And it's going to take some years, and i got 18 years to do that. And that's all i got. Maybe not even that. Hopefully there will be a man before 18. But it is, it is my job to produce adults and image bearers of God who, who, who love and obey God. And so, we're not going to be friends. I'm going to be your father. And your father is going to love you. And your father is going to care for you. And your father is going to shower you with good things. But your father is not going to be your chum. Yeah, we're going to do things together. We're going to have good times together. But I'm on a different level here. I have a purpose in training you. And no kid says, thanks, Dad. Right? No kid says that. Uh, no kid says, thanks, Dad, for that whoop. And I, uh, that was preparing me for adulthood. That's great, Dad. Right? No, that doesn't happen. That does not happen. Well, how many of you look back and say, Dad, thanks for that whoop. <laughs> Uh, thanks for saying no to me and hauling me out of that store when I was throwing my little temper tantrum, right? And so the fatherly love of God designs trials, designs suffering, designs pain for your good and your holiness. Now this is interesting. If we think about our context here, we have people who are facing persecution, Now, they're facing persecution from unbelievers, people who do not know God. And yet, God has designed that, what unbelievers do to believers, as part of his training process. 
God is connected to all of this. We do not have a God who is distant from us. We have a God who is in control. He's God. And he allows, he designs, he works out his plan, however you want to describe it, he works out his plan to make us more and more to the image of Jesus Christ. And so in this passage, in verse 12, he says this, Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down, and the feeble knees. Now, that is from the Old Testament, from Isaiah 35, verse 3, that I read to open us this morning. And the second part about straight paths is from Proverbs 4.26. And the idea here is picking up on this athletic picture. And verses 1 and 2 of Hebrews 12, talking about running the race. Jess Davis isn't here, but she's run at least a half marathon, I believe. And she may have run a full, probably, I don't know if she's run a full marathon. But uh, some of you run 5Ks. Uh, I could do that as long as you tell me what that K, as long as I get to redefine what that K stands for. Um, uh, but but, but uh, um, when you run, after a while they say you can hit a wall in some of these long distance runs. <clears throat> I wouldn't know. And you just want to quit. And your body just starts to slow down and your legs feel like jello and rubber. And, and those of you who, who played sports, you're running your suicides, uh, your, um, your sprints, wind sprints. You know what that's like. Some of you have run cross country and you know, you know the experience. You get to a point where you just need some energy. And that's the picture here. Someone who has run for a while and they are beat. They are beat down. Their hands are hanging. Their knees are just not strong. Have you ever climbed a mountain and then gone back down the mountain? And so on the way back down, you got gravity and you got weak legs and you're just like uh, all the way down, hoping that you don't fall. Um, <clears throat> climb Mount Monadnock at Christian uh, summer camp when I was a kid every year which is a, one of the highest peaks here in the New England area. Of course, Mount Washington is the highest. Um, and uh, I remember being in third grade and walking back down that mountain and thinking, I can't stop myself. <laughs> My legs were just going. Uh, I had no strength left. And that's the idea here. Drooping hands, weak knees. It's picturing low spirits. People who've been incapable of action through sheer exhaustion. And, 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 and the idea here is, is you see them. And you lift up their hands. And you help their feeble knees. Somebody who's running and has uh, uh, feeble knees and, and has uh, uh, weak arms and, and drooping arms, uh, they don't have anything left. Other people got to come by and help them. And I just want to show you uh, something here uh, that, I, that I thought was very, uh, very interesting here. And the first part is fortify with... The promises of God. Now, if he tells us to strengthen, uh, uh, strengthen one another's uh, 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 knees, uh, lift up the hands that hang down, he's not just saying, tell those people to just suck it up. Pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Um, tell them that, you know, it's not that bad, they can handle it. No, these people are in heat. They are in pressure. They are under fire here. And so, 
He wants the church to come alongside of them and strengthen them. Now, how does it happen? Well, it happens when we speak the truth of God to each other about the promises of God. Strengthen. Fortify. Fortify. Your tongue, James says, has power to destroy. But it has incredible power to build up. And that's what the believer's tongue is supposed to do. It's supposed to build, to edify. Strengthen them with the promises of God. That doesn't mean we give these cliche answers, you know. Um, Well, God's in control. Yes, He is. Yes, He is. Okay? There's nothing wrong with saying that. But be careful about some of those cliche things. Minister wisely uh, uh, the, the, um, the, 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 the Word of God, the promises of God. Here. By the way, just as a cliche doesn't mean it's not true, so... <clears throat> but the words here are talking about encouraging one another. I came across uh, this story here. Kara, you'll like this. is from Minnesota. Um, these are two cross-country runners. Little girls in eighth grade. I think the larger girl uh, there is a senior. And they are running a, a cross-country race. And this little girl, she, her legs would not run anymore. She kept falling to the ground. She couldn't get up. She kept falling to the ground. And this, everyone was passing her, and the rules are, in cross-country, you can't help uh, the other person or you're disqualified. And um, uh, people from the stand as, uh, along the side couldn't help as well. But this girl, the older girl, saw her ahead of her, and she, re- she knew that she'd be disqualified if she helped, but she didn't, that didn't matter. She's willing to make the sacrifice to help this little girl across the finish line. And they formed a lifelong friendship now. And uh, this little clip here, <clears throat> next clip, uh, shares a little bit of that story that you might uh, find interesting. Rule that that race would continue to struggle a lot. You want to help them, but yet, you know, that if you go out to help them, they're automatically disqualified. I just wanted somebody to do something. Gracie's son is about to arrive. The mystery brunch is Gracie. He's wearing the colors of Mountain Lights. You're with me. I've got you. She told Gracie. And Gracie's came all the character across the bench. It was so insane on her part. She didn't she didn't stop and look to somebody or listen to the people that were saying, Don't touch her, don't touch her. It was like she knew she saw somebody in trouble and she made that decision to help her. And didn't do it so. Or booze. I don't remember really to do that. Just, yeah. <laughs> in her final high school race was, like Gracie, disqualified. Especially her senior year in her last race. It just means like everything. Mm-hmm. I don't remember what place I was in the section last year. I don't remember what place I was in the section before that. I apologize for the audio not matching up with the video there. But you hear the people in the background, just crawl! Just crawl! Right? And that's not what the church is supposed to be like. Just crawl! You're down there! Come on! I did it! No. What that girl did was she sacrificed her last race of her senior year to come alongside and help that little one who needed help. She's on a different team. Yeah, opposite team. And she helped. And that's the point here. Uh, uh, listen. <clears throat> Sometimes people just need you to sit with them. 
and let you know and let them know that you are there with them. And you're not going what they're going you're not going through what they're going through, but you're willing to be with them as they're going through it. Uh, sometimes people need the encouragement of, of, the, of the Word of God. Uh, in First Thessalonians, Paul tells uh, four different types of responses to give to different people. And to the ones who are weary and the ones who are discouraged, he says, encourage them. Encourage them. Charlie was talking in Sunday school. I showed up for the, for the tail end of it. But he mentioned, you got these phones now that can text and call. And they're always with you. And all kinds of opportunities to encourage one another. Shoot, shoot a text over. How you doing? I am praying for you specifically today. Um, uh, uh, Ethan and I have an opportunities to uh, uh, when when he uh, is struggling with something, he'll shoot me a text and say, "Pray for me. This I need. I need prayer for this." Um, and uh, and we have opportunity to, to meet with each other uh, uh, often and weekly, and we say, "How you're doing in your spiritual walk? Um, uh, where have you seen your faith falter this this week? And what do you think is behind that? What might be the idols or the lies that you're believing behind that? And confess that to each other. We pray for each other, and we think of uh, applications and action steps to work through uh, here. Uh, uh, that's what that's what the body of Christ is to be. We're not living on an island in isolation here. We're all in this together. And don't you want to get to heaven arm in arm together, linked together? Amen. And that's what this is all about in Hebrews chapter 12. And some of us need to break the cultural uh, uh, norms in our area of being private people and being scared to open up and, and, and get some friends. And encourage one another. And meet for breakfast over 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 1 through 4. Or meet for breakfast and just say, how can I pray for you? Or whatever it might be, work it out. But break out of our shells here. And I am just as much an introvert as, as, as many of you. Even though it might not look like it because I'm up in front of you. But God had to change me to do that. And it is not natural for us to like to live secluded private lives to say, help, I need help. But it is one of the most godly things you can do because it declares that you do need help and you are not the king, but you serve a good king who can provide help. And you know how he provides that help? He does it through his people. So get together. How many of you know everybody in this room? We are not a large church, are we? I looked on the uh, on the list of folks that attend um, here on a generally on a Sunday about 113 people I counted um, that, that are, are usually regularly and coming here, and 56 of those people that I counted um, were people who have come in the last five years or less, and so at least. Half of you, not half of you in this, in this room, but half in the list are people relatively new. Some of you have family uh, in this congregation, uh, and so you have more natural connections. Some of you, it was harder to, harder to, harder to, 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 to break in. Bruce and Liz don't know anybody, and they sh- came how long ago? Oh, six, 
six years ago or so, okay, um, and, uh, and and plugged in. But and and and, and but we got to have have parts in us that say, I want to get to know you. I want to have you over for dinner. I want to hear what makes you tick. What uh, what 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 brought you here? Uh, what do you do? How many of you know what everybody in this place does for a job? I mean, that's just common conversational thing, right? But yet we have to connect, and that's the point here, is we have to be able to do that. If we're going to obey God in this passage, we have to be able to, to, to know each other. How am I going to help somebody if I don't know that they're really struggling, right? Difficult. So fortify with the promises of God. I didn't really get to, get to develop that point like I'd like to. But secondly, focus on the calling. Focus on the calling. Look what he says in verse 12 or 13. And make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Uh, that seems really confusing. But the point is this. Have you ever had a bad knee or a bad ankle? The last thing you want to do is go hike up Ragged Mountain, right? Um, the twists and turns, the roots, the rocks, it's not good. But if you know you have to run a race and you got a bad knee or a bad angle, it would be nice to do it on Route 17 with no cars in the straight stretches, right? Smooth surface, straight. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, make straight paths for your feet. Because those who are limping along, uh, uh, it's going to be hard to be stumbling over roots. And he says, come alongside and clear out the path ahead of them. It's no use for weak knees being strengthened in verse 12 to now walk on rocky uh, paths. And the straightness here is the idea of of walking on the road of holiness. The straight and narrow way, the road of holiness. So walk on the road of holiness. If you've got weak knees, you're struggling, the worst thing you're going to want to do is walk down the path of worldliness. That's just going to blow your knee out. He says, walk down the path of holiness. Walk together down it. The straightness is, is the idea of righteousness. Um, Remove the boulders, the stumbling blocks. Chapter 12, verse 1 through 3, right? Get your eyes on Jesus and walk on the straight, clear road together. And those in the weak state should concentrate on healing. And the last thing that we want to encourage them to do is walk again down that road of worldliness or wrong thinking. And the picture here is of a lame man who's putting his disabled leg completely out of joint because of the unnecessary roughness of the path. That doesn't mean the path of Jesus is easy, but the point is, his way is the straight way. His way is the straight way. I'll show you this picture here of Scotland. Um, see that road there? They have an interesting way of building highways in Scotland. Um, if they come up to a natural obstacle, they don't do what Americans did, burrowing through the Rocky Mountains for train tunnels and blowing up uh, obstacles. You know what they do? They build the road around it. And if you get car sick, you would get car sick in Scotland because the roads are very curvy, like in Maine. There's a lot of Scotch-Irish in Maine, so maybe that's part of the problem. I'm Scottish, by the way. Uh, 
once in a while you get to a long straight road that will go through an obstacle in the way. And if there's a hill in that road, they might have cut through it and the road will go straight. And when you get to that road, you know that the Scots didn't build that road. It was probably from the Romans and Hadrian, Emperor Hadrian, 2,000 years ago when they were occupying Scotland. And the Scots just came along and just paved over it. Because the Scots built roads around natural obstacles. And the author of Hebrews is saying he would much rather be on one of those straight highways where we're not halting between opinions and not double-minded and we're sticking with Christ and we're moving straight ahead. And you know what? We need each other to help each other build those straight roads to Jesus. To get our focus, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, back on Jesus. Thirdly, find the purpose of the Father's training. Find the purpose of the Father's training. Verse 14, follow peace with all men in holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Pursue peace and sanctification. In other words, pursue the holiness that God is pursuing in you through His whole training program. God is more about your good than you are. It takes faith to believe that. But God is wholeheartedly devoted to your good more than you and I are devoted to our own good. And wherever you are in your walk... You may be saying, where's my joy? And I want to tell you that's okay. Because joy might seem impossible where you are in your walk right now. But that's because God will always bring peace. God will always bring peace. Um, Why do trials come? Why are we counted joy when trials come? Why are we not to be surprised when trials come? Well, in verses 3 through 13, he tells us. He says in verse 7, God is dealing with you as sons. And in verse 10, he says, that we might be partakers of his holiness. And verse 11 says, Nevertheless, though it's difficult, afterward it yields, it produces the peaceable or the peaceful fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. The results of going to God's gym produces the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So now I don't see my trials and my circumstances as huge boulders in my road, but now I see them as this is an opportunity. God just made an appointment with me in his gym. And he's going to produce the peaceful fruit of righteousness through this. What am I going to learn through this? So find the purpose of the Father's training. When you understand that, that will open up your your viewpoint to despising the trials of God or taking them lightly to God has a purpose for this in me. And I might not know what the initial purposes are, but I can tell you what the end purpose is. 
And the end purpose is, he is making me more like Jesus by shaving off and smoothing out the things that are not like him. So find the purpose of the Father's training. Now, what is that purpose? Well, this is Michael Phelps here. That is not the purpose of your Father's training. Michael Phelps, most decorated Olympic athlete, 23 gold medals. And he's he's wearing them all right there, all right? He's pretty proud of his success there, uh, but it took a lot of work to get there. If you ask Michael Phelps if all that training was worth it, he'd probably tell you, yeah, it was to get those gold medals and those silver medals and a couple bronze. But folks, our reward is not gold medals. Our reward is Christ. And when we enter into heaven, when we enter into glory... This life is preparation for that. Because when we enter into glory, and I hope that we enter into glory arm in arm together, when we enter into glory, the end result is what the Bible calls glorification. And that means that I am no longer affected by sin. And I am not just declared righteous, I have been made Perfectly and totally righteous. And that's where sanctification uh, meets its apex. And we will never sin again. We will never be in a fallen world. And we share in Christ's glory. If you understand that goal, maybe you can work through the process a little bit. For... Verse 15, 14 and 15. Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Looking diligently, and it's the word looking there is it, diligently is the word overseeing, like a bishop, an overseer. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God. Lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. So this is a community project here. So fourthly, fight bitterness with faith and grace. Now, how would you fail of the grace of God? Does that mean that you have some part of earning the grace of God? No. The grace of God here stands for all the benefits which God and His grace has provided. And much failure among God's people is due to a lack of appropriating those benefits. To, to, to cashing in on those benefits. To cashing in on the strength that God gives. And he gives a specific example here. Uh, when a root of bitterness causes trouble. And he quotes from Deuteronomy 29.17. Where under the Old Testament, there would be Israelites whose bitterness would prove that they were apostates. They were falling away. Deuteronomy 29.17. You can check it out later. But here it's applied in the general sense of anything or anything, anyone or anything that results in bitterness. And he says that bitterness can be like a root of a plant that affects the fruits that the plant produces. And that root of bitterness, uh, that bad root of that plant, uh, uh, develops and it multiplies. You ever seen that happen among God's people? Bitterness multiplying? Bitterness extending its influence. And listen, bitterness always corrupts, it always spoils, it always destroys. It always does. 
That same word, defiled, is used in Titus 1.15 to describe false teachers and unbelievers whose minds and consciences are to be corrupt. And how do you know if you're bitter? Here's a big neon light. You have a critical spirit. You have a critical spirit. Uh, you uh, 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 are, are quick to look. You're, you're more like a fly than a bee. A fly lands on anything dead and it just likes it. Bees look for sunlight and look for flowers and they make honey, don't they? Are you a fly or a bee? <laughs> a Christian is to be like the bee. Which means they have their eyes on Jesus. They have not despised the sufferings and the things, the hardships of their life. Because when you despise the training of the Lord and say, Lord, what's going on here? Or you start to point your finger at other people and say, this is happening to me because of them. You know what you're really doing? You are explaining the bitterness in your life instead of confessing by faith your lack of trust in a good father. There's a difference there. There's a difference between trying to explain and justify the bitterness in your life versus saying, God, I confess I am not trusting you as a good father. And what you are really railing against, especially if you're a bitter and have an unforgiving spirit here, is not those people that you're trying to put the blame on, though you might think you are. You might think that's your biggest problem. Your biggest problem is... You are acting in rebellion against God, your good Father, who Hebrews 12 says um, uh, has, has, has the training of the Lord, who is dealing with you as with sons. And maybe it's an unforgiving spirit. You, would just, you just hold this hot coal over, there, over that person's head who has wronged you, and they may have wronged you wrongly. <laughs> All right? They, 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 they have no excuse for what they did. But you will not let that go. And you are holding that fire over their head, thinking you're burning your head, and your hands are melting off. Corey Ten Boom said, To forgive is to set a prisoner free, and the prisoner is you. And you are enchained to your bitter spirit. And if you are going to finish the race, you have to give up that bitterness. In Myanmar, I saw this, this, this a lot in the capital of, uh, of Yangon. I mentioned this before, but all those um, little vines, it's called the strangler fig. And what happens is a little seed from the strangler fig uh, lands on a tree or lands on the ground and grows up around the tree. And, and, it's, and this, these vines just encapsulate this tree. So much so that it chokes the life of the tree out. That tree dies After a while, the trunk rots, and all that's left is this web of what the strangler fig was around. And so the strangler fig actually looks like the tree now. And what a picture of bitterness. It does no good for anybody. And is ultimately rebelling against the good God. God gives you trials, and God allows people to do unkind and wrong things to you to prove what's inside of you. Like a tea bag, right? A tea bag smells good, and you put it in the hot water, and it starts to permeate the water. 
And hopefully in your trials, by God's grace, what is coming out is the fragrance of Christ. And you're seeing opportunities to serve God and opportunities to become more like Christ. And opportunities to minister to those people. But you've got to let that bitterness go. You've got to work through that forgiveness. And I'll tell you, it's a process. It's a step of faith, but it's a process. And if that's something you are, uh, that, is, that is really a problem in your life, and you're feeling the strangler, strangler root hold of that, then you need, you need help. You need help. Because you're not going to do it all by yourself. And finally, fifthly, fear the faithless life. Fear it. Fear it. We have in the last couple verses, as we close, this guy Esau... Well, I'm assuming a little Bible knowledge here this morning. But Esau uh, made a bad choice. He's called in verse 16 a, a fornicator or an, or an immoral person, a profane person. And Esau had the opportunity to have the blessing of God through his father Isaac, the covenant that God made with Abraham. He had the opportunity presented to him as the oldest son. Through his birthright. And Esau comes in hungry, and Jacob uses his deceit, and you know how the story ends. But he trades that position for a bowl of soup. For a bowl of soup. Which is probably really good when you're hungry. But he regretted that. He regretted that. And we don't really read anything in the Bible, in the Old Testament, and even in the New Testament about Esau being a child of God. We have no assurance of that. And he's saying, don't be like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal and after that couldn't repent. Do not trade the pain, the exercise of God's discipline in his gymnasium for the lights of the world. Don't do it. When you use your trials... To give you an excuse to sin. Oh, I've had a rough day, so i gotta, I got I to gotta take a puff on this. Or, I, I, I've had a hard time, and, and I, need some, I need some comfort, I need some relief, and so I'm going to look at things on the internet that I know I shouldn't look at. Or I'm having trouble with my spouse, so it would make good sense for me to find some, some affirmation from, from someone online. Of the opposite gender who would give me what my spouse isn't giving me. Like, that's going to help, right? Um, do not use your trials to give you an excuse to sin. If you do that, you are on a dangerous path of unbelief and you are trading what God desires to produce in you, the full image of Jesus, for your belly. And aren't you thankful for people like Moses? who Hebrews 11 says had an opportunity to have all the riches of Egypt and he could have justified that very easily, couldn't he? I'm the adopted daughter of the Pharaoh of Egypt. I'm the adopted son of the daughter of Pharaoh. He could have had any excuse, but it says he esteemed or he, he, he valued the reproach of Christ far greater than those treasures. And folks, if this is a pattern, you may be a person who is faithless. That may be the summary of your life on your gravestone. And that is a fearful thing. 
And he's giving a severe warning to warn of that. Those who never were truly had a heart that was alive and born again in faith. It is a lie that our society tells us that you can be happy in your own self and your own circumstances apart from Christ. It is a lie. And that's why this passage is here for us. To walk through this together. To come alongside the ones who are lame. The ones who are feeble. The ones who are, uh, whose hands hang down. And also to examine our own hearts. And to exhort ourselves to not have a hard heart of unbelief like chapter 3 talks about. Over and over through this book, he gives warnings to the community of Jesus to make sure that what they have in them is real, is real faith. The song in our hymn book just says, When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace... All sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross, which is your impurities, to consume and thy gold to refine. In other words, the flames are not there to hurt you. They are designed to burn up the impurities in you. To produce you as pure, fine gold. Now I wove in this because I think it's a, a part of the point of the passage that we need to be people who are not disconnected from each other but are running together in this fight. We need to move beyond sitting in pews and rows to sitting in circles. We need to connect with one another. And I'm going to give you one little bit of application after this. Take advantage of the three-minute rule. Three-minute rule begins when the final prayer is said here in a couple minutes. Or the last song is sung. And your immediate temptation, which isn't wrong, is to talk to the people that you know the best. Right? And during those three minutes, two things are going, to be, are going to happen. People who are familiar with each other are going to talk to one another, which is wonderful. But people who don't know anybody are going to leave quickly. And this is crucial. If you take the time after we finish here to talk to people who maybe you aren't as connected to. You are participating here in the beginning stages of God's desire of us as a church to be the church to one another. Don't you want a church that people want to be a part of? How's that happen? <laughs> Doesn't happen by continuing the same thing over and over again, inspecting different result, right? It happens when we die to self and we extend open hands to others. Because we want to, we are in this battle together, and our sanctification is a community project. And we are to link arms and march together as soldiers of Jesus Christ in a fallen world for His glory and by His grace. So be friendly 
connect with them, look for opportunities to invite them over. It's simply called practice Christian hospitality, and it's not a suggestion from Pastor Jamie. Christian hospitality is a command from the God of Heaven, from His, from from the from the Savior, the Bride, to His people.